this is in some ways, uh, I think, a workshop that shouldn't be in a conference that's focusing on the pastor's personal ministry of the word, because uh, in some ways we're contrasting that to the pastor's public ministry of the word. The public ministry is, is primarily the, the preaching ministry, the times of, of more public proclamation, and the personal ministry of the word is focused a bit more on uh, individual, small group, counseling kinds of things. And yet, I think, ideally, those go hand in hand, that in your public proclamation of the word and the way that you are seeking to apply the scriptures to people, uh, you will benefit the, the discipleship ministry of your church. And so I want us to think about an important aspect of that public proclamation, and that's application. Uh, I think largely there's three things you can do with any idea, and there's, those are three things that w- what we use to really flesh out the sermons that we preach. That is to explain an idea, to prove an idea or argue uh, for an idea, and to apply an idea. And sometimes people think illustrate an idea, but illustrate is not really separate from those three things. Illustrations are doing one of those three things. You're either illustrating to explain something, you're illustrating to argue for it, or you're illustrating to apply it. Sometimes the, the prove or argue and the application overlap. And uh, where they overlap, I don't really plan on covering that, in part because uh, uh, three years ago, I actually did a workshop called Persuasive Preaching, in which I tried to to talk about the need to argue in your sermons as one aspect of persuasive preaching. And so if you want to look into that more, uh, you can go to our website and see that from the 2008 E3 conference. And this one, we want to focus on applying it. And I've did the one on persuasive preaching, and I'm doing this one because as I interact with preachers and as I listen to uh, preachers, I think those of us who are committed to expository preaching usually get explaining easier than we do arguing and applying. And that's in part because a lot of what the training we get in hermeneutics and theology and those kinds of things are helping us to be able to get up and, and explain what a passage is saying. But we often really struggle then if we're trying to think about what kind of objections might people have, how do I convince people of of what this is saying, and how do I help them to see how this shows up in their life. And yet, I think application in expository preaching is is a vital part of the sermon. That's where I want to start in your notes there, the importance of application. You'll you'll see there a note uh, from... Several uh, quotes from several different um, authors. The first there from Donald Sanukian in his book, Invitation to Biblical Preaching. He says, unless the listeners get a mental picture of some real-life situation, the biblical truth remains an abstraction. Unless they see a video running in their minds, the biblical concept remains vague and unhelpful. The message has no apparent bearing on their lives until they visualize some person, event, or circumstance in their everyday world, that you want them when they're hearing what you're saying, when they come away from what you're saying, to to have a concrete idea, to be able to actually point to, this is the kind of situation, or this is the kind of person I need to be, or something like that. You You want them coming away with that kind of idea. Otherwise, I don't know that they're really getting what you're saying. Second quote there from Carter Duvall and Hayes. Until your people have been challenged to change something in their lives, a behavior, a belief, an attitude, an insecurity, a fear, you've not successfully completed your sermon. And, and I don't think he's wrong, in part because I, I'm, I'm convinced, I remember hearing this when I was uh, just going through undergrad, that in any sermon you hear, there's something that you can change in light of what you hear from God's Word. Because we're never perfect in any aspect of our, of our Christian life. And so even if it's small, there's no sermon you can go away from if God's word has been open and say, well, there's nothing I can do in light of that. And so I think he's right in saying, you didn't really complete your sermon unless people are recognizing, this is something I need to adjust. This is something I need to change. From Brian Chappell in his classic book, Christ-Centered Preaching, Application fulfills the obligation of exposition. An application is the present personal consequence of scriptural truth. And I'll come back to that 
because uh, I think I think he's right in saying it fulfills the obligations of exposition. And that's because of what the scripture actually is. And then finally, the classic book by John Broadus. The application in a sermon is not merely an appendage to the discussion or a subordinate part of it, but is the main thing to be done. Spurgeon says, where application begins, there the sermon begins. The preacher is not to speak before the people, but to them. He must earnestly strive to make them apply what he says to themselves. And I think that's because Scripture was not merely given to fill our heads with knowledge. But the goal of a sermon isn't that people come away and say, I understand that better, and that's it. You want them to understand it better. But you want them to understand it better because you want it to shape what they believe. You want it to transform how they feel. You want it to adjust what they do. And so if our presentation of Scripture neglects this purpose, we're actually misrepresenting the text. Because God's purpose was to accomplish those ends. And we see that in the passage, for example, like 2 Timothy 3. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for what? Well, for teaching, yes, but also for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. People are supposed to come out better able to serve God. And so if we are not applying Scripture, we are not dealing with Scripture the way that God intends for us to deal with it. And so we need to have application in our sermons. And secondly, I want to say, we need to be the ones making the application in our sermons. And that's because sometimes, you, 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 maybe you've had someone say this, I don't want to denigrate someone if they hear them, they get to the end of a sermon and want to say, well, may God apply this to our hearts. And, and I think often we almost kind of assume, well, that's like the work of the Holy Spirit to apply God's word. Our work is to explain it, and the Holy Spirit will apply it. And the answer is, well, well, yes, but that doesn't mean it's not your job too. That often we see in Scripture, it's not as though the Holy Spirit does it so we don't. In fact, most of how sanctification works is the Holy Spirit does it so we do too. That God's at work in you, so you work with Him. And I think it, it, it seems a little strange to think, Christians need someone to get up and explain God's word to them, but they don't need anyone to apply it to them. I think the reality is we need people to help us do both. That good teachers and good preachers are doing both. And you'll see the quote there from Herschel York and Scott Blue. Some believe application and translation of the text into contemporary life in specific situations is the work of the Holy Spirit. Such reasoning seems disingenuous at best. Why would the Holy Spirit require a preacher to explain the meaning of the text, but not to apply it? What biblical or moral principle makes exegesis the work of the preacher and application the exclusive province of the Spirit? More plausible is the belief that the Holy Spirit uses human means to accomplish both tasks involved in exposition. And I think that's because of of what I say there next. Your listeners will on occasion recognize the application of a truth. However... They will not do this as a general rule. Because most listeners are passive listeners. And that shouldn't surprise you, because when you listen to sermons, that's how you listen to sermons. When you're done, you go to maybe another church, or you're you're not preaching on that Sunday, and someone else is preaching, and you get to the end, how many of you sit there and start really wrestling? All right, so now, what is this going to mean for me? Okay, please, everyone walk by me in the aisle. You know, climb over me in the pew so I can sit here. We don't do that, right? None of us do that. We immediately get up. And we go on with our lives. And very often, we don't put a lot of effort into thinking, so what does this practically mean for me? Unless the preacher did that to help you. Unless the preacher helped you to do that in his sermon. And so I think we need to recognize we have a responsibility to help people to see how God's word is to be applied, how God's word is to manifest itself in their lives. And when we do that, there's a great benefit. I think there's several things we could look at as talking about why application is beneficial. I want to just hit three briefly. Two of these are mentioned by Chapel. A third is found in that article by York and Blue. Chapel, first of all, argues that application justifies exposition. And 
Maybe you don't think about this. Um, but maybe from time to time you should ask yourself, why would people come and sit somewhere and listen to me talk for 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 50 or 60 or maybe more than that, probably not most of us. And probably if so, we probably should cut it down a little bit. But why? Why? And you say, well, because they love God. Well, that's good. You know, it's just kind of a duty, so they sit there and endure it. On some level, they're there because they want to know what God has to say for their lives. And so if you get up, what do you want to tell them to say? This is what God's saying for your life. They're people who love God, and therefore they want to do, they want to keep His commandments. They want to follow Him. And so you're helping them to see what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to keep his commandments? What does it mean to become more and more like Jesus Christ? In light of this text, what would that look like in your life? And so when you are preaching, you are justifying the exposition. You're you're giving a reason for them to be there and to hear you. And people often point out that application is, is, in a sense, answering two questions. So what and now what? And you really don't want to get to the end of your sermon and have people ask those questions and not be able to answer them. You get done and they say, so what? Well, I don't know. Why were we here? What were we trying to accomplish these last several minutes? And now what? So what do I do now? You don't want them grasping after that reality. You at least want them to begin to have some answers, even if it means that they need to think more fully and wrestle with it more deeply. And I think that's legitimate. I don't think it always needs to be, in a sense, like pre-chewed food. But they need to have the, the utensils in order to keep carving into the steak. They need to know where to head as they wrestle with these things more fully. And just a note there. If you say, well, why do people come and listen? Because you're an interesting speaker. That's not sufficient. Because people might be interested in what you say because some people just like to learn. But that's not the goal in the church. The goal in the church isn't to come and be entertained and to have something that's like exciting for them. I actually had a, a professor one time who, who, who was telling us, as you write your papers... I don't want to ever see anything interesting in your paper. And he's saying that not because he meant I want to be bored when I read your paper. He doesn't want there to be, why is this here? Well, I just thought it was interesting. And I think on some level, that's you don't want that in your sermons either. You don't want there to be, why is this here? It's because, well, I just thought maybe this might be a fascinating thing for you to understand. Largely what you're doing is, why am I saying this? Because this is what you need to know in order to know God more. This is what you need to know in order to love God more. This is what you need to know in order to obey God better. And so that's why I'm saying these things. That's why I'm proclaiming these truths. Secondly, application trains your congregation. Uh, Maybe you've heard this before, but I think it's true. The way that we preach is how we train people to read God's Word. And so when you preach, you're always pulling things out that you find fascinating in a passage and kind of jumping off somewhere else, you know how people are probably going to read their Bible? That same way. They're going to kind of like keep reading. I don't know. Oh, well, that's an interesting phrase. What can I do with this? But if instead, as you are preaching God's word, you're, you're helping them to, to try to follow the argument that's being made. You're pointing out why it's significant to, to see the specific words that are being used here. And that's how they're going to read the scriptures. But if you never take the next step and say, so that means we've got to live a certain way, then how do you think they're going to read their Bibles? But if when you are preaching, you are regularly helping them to see, this is how, in light of what God has said here, this is how we then should live this out in our lives, then as they read the scripture, they'll be doing the same things. They'll be able to develop what you'll see there as moral discernment, which I think is is desperately lacking and desperately needed in our day. That we want people in our church to be able to think through the situations in their life and be able to to evaluate, so what would God say about this thing? What would God want me to do here? And if you've been consistently showing them how to do that, 
You've been consistently applying God's word. They're going to be developing that same skill. The skill to look at God's truth and then see how it would come to bear in the lives that they are living, in the practical day-to-day realities. And the third benefit is application focuses the exposition. No matter how long you preach, if you have done a, a good job of, of studying through the passage, you, you should have more you could say. Um, and I'd say if, if that's not true, you probably need to shrink your sermon a little bit. You, you know there's always things like, what, well, what should I talk about? I've only got so much time, and there's so much here. What should I say? In some ways, this is going to bleed into what we're going to talk about here in a moment. But the answer to that question should always be, well, what does God want us to know from this passage? What's God's purpose here? And, and, and that is then going to drive what I'm going to say and what I'm not going to say. What I need to include and what I shouldn't include. I mentioned that explanation tends to come more easily to, to people who are focused on exposition. Uh, explanation comes more easily to those who are focused on expositional preaching. And that often means we need to do a little bit less explanation in our sermons and more argumentation and application. So then the question comes, well, what do I need to explain? What should I not explain? And that's driven by what's his purpose? What does God want us to come away knowing? What does God want us to come away thinking? What does God want us to come away loving? And so the application drives and refines what it is that you will actually say as you get up and proclaim God's word. And so if application is an important thing for you to do in order to to faithfully expound God's truth, and if it's something that you need to be engaged in, if it's something that's beneficial for the people in your church, how do you do it? And what I'm going to say here isn't the, the, the only answer. It's not even the fullest kind of answer. There's other things, other ways that you could potentially try to develop application. These are some suggestions that I've found helpful, and I hope you might find helpful as well in, in spurring you on to, to be uh, better at applying God's word. The first one, though, I'd say is not just helpful, it's necessary. Grounded in the text. That any application must connect with the meaning and purposes of the text. And so until you understand what God is saying in this passage, you can't apply it. Anything you're saying that you can't look back and say, this is why I'm saying this, it's your opinion. Which may be decent, but certainly isn't nearly as good as God's eternal truth. And so you want to make sure that you can say, thus says the Lord. Or potentially, even even if you can't confidently say, I know this is how this applies, say, you know what? We'll get this a little bit later. This I know is what God wants. And in light of I know this is what God wants, this is something that I think maybe we should consider that we should do. But on some level, it's not just, I just have a gut feeling. Or this kind of bugs me. But I'm pointing it back and saying, so this is actually what, what God would say here. Because you want to be able to tie it back to the authority of Scripture. You need to ground it in the text. And, and in the text you're preaching from, not, well, somewhere in the Bible we could probably figure out a basis for this. You want it to be tied to, to the passage you're preaching. Secondly, focus on the whole person. That the mind, the will, and the emotions or affections are all part of application. Which means, as you're thinking through, what does this passage mean for us? What's God's purpose in this passage? It's not always going to be, so do this thing or stop doing this thing. Sometimes it's going to be, so start thinking this way. Or stop thinking this way. Sometimes it's going to be, you need to change your perspective. You need to change your attitude. You need to change your mindset. Sometimes it's going to be, you need to stop feeling that way. You need to stop valuing these things the way you value them. You need to start valuing something else. 
And so it's not always going to be, so when you leave, this is what you will do tomorrow. Sometimes the primary goal is going to be something different. So, so just recently, I was uh, speaking at a church related to uh, missions emphasis. And in my message, my goal was not so much saying, I want you to go out and share the gospel, which I think is certainly a biblical goal. My goal was on making sure you understood the right motivations to do so. And so when they left, I wasn't thinking, when they leave, I want them to go and share the gospel with the first person they see. It'd be great. But really what I wanted is when they left, I wanted them to understand why they needed to. I wanted them to have the right perspective and to, to have the right love for God's glory and other people that was necessary to undergird their work of sharing the gospel. And so often, as we're doing application, don't just, begin, don't just think behavior. Recognize the full aspect of humanity and, and the fact that God's word would apply to those areas. Then start with your own life. You're looking at a passage and you're thinking, man, well, how, how would this passage potentially touch base with us today? And, and one of the easiest things to do is say, well, what about me? And the first step is, is, I think, related to the first two general sessions we've heard. Make sure you're living it out yourself. You can't get up and apply it unless you're living it. And again, that doesn't mean you're living it perfectly because you're never going to do that. But you want your life to be the kind of life you want anyone else coming out of your sermon today. If you're saying, when they leave, I want them to be like this, then coming in, your life should be like that. Because otherwise you can't really preach it in such a way with any kind of force because you don't really believe it. You're asking other people to do something you're not willing to do. And so first of all, you've got to make sure it's true in your own life. And related to that, then you've got to say, so... When has I experienced something like this? Maybe you're, you're working through James and it talks about you know, where do wars and, and fightings come from among you? Don't they come from your own desires and stop and say, well, when has that happened for me? When has that shown up in my life? And potentially, where could it show up in my life? I, I think one of the, the great tools of application that is often neglected is a, a sanctified imagination, if I can say it that way. Uh, a kind of perspective of thinking about, in light of what Scripture says and in light of what I understand of the world, what would this look like? Because you may not always be able to say, here's a real-life story. But you could say, here's a true-to-life example. And those are often just as effective if they actually are true-to-life. And so you're trying to think through, where might this show up in my life? And you do that because you know yourself the best. You've lived your life. And, and you might know this, the older you get, in some ways the easier application gets because you've lived life more. You know, when you're, when you're first starting to preach, uh, Dr. Reggie mentioned, you know, talking about parenting. It's really hard before you're even a parent. Now, in some ways, it's easier because you know all the answers, right? <laughs> but in other ways, it's a lot harder because you really don't know what you're talking about. And so you're really struggling with, what am I going to say about this? And yet, on some level, you're like, well, it's, I mean, I want to try to, to apply God's word to these people. And, and then as you actually experience life in a sinful marriage because you're a sinful person, you begin to now have experiences and examples. Let me give a caution, though. Don't always like use your life as the example. Start there. <laughs> Think about how it might show up. But it shouldn't be every week. Let me tell you what happened with me and my wife this week. Right. And I, I, I heard, I think, good counsel uh, when I was a young, a young preacher. You don't want to always be the hero of your story, and you don't always want to be the villain of your story. Because in both situations, I think you're undermining your ministry. If you're always the one succeeding, you're giving a false view of who you are. If you're always the one failing, people are going to begin to say, well, why are we listening to this guy? I mean, he never does anything right. And so you want to, to avoid both extremes. And I, and I think be open and occasionally talk about things in your life. Uh, but don't throw your family under the bus. Um, and, and really, more so, start there. 
to begin to give you perspective on how you might apply this to other people's lives, in part because they don't have the exact life you have either. So start with your own life. Uh, Think about where it shows up there. And then be specific. A lot of application is generic. You say, so what's, what's, what should people come away thinking from this sermon? Well, they should come away thinking, I want to be a forgiving person. Okay, that's not bad, but that doesn't necessarily really begin to flesh out what does that mean in my life. I come away saying, I, I want to be someone who loves others. Well, that, that's good. But like coming into church where people are like, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be a person who loves. No, they came in thinking that. And they're going to go away thinking that. But, but often they're not, they're not able to answer the question, now what? So I'm going to be a loving person. What does that mean in my life? What does that actually look like? So if I could use, I think, a, a helpful example from the, the general session we were just at. You need to be a good listener. I don't want to be a good listener. So, so what's something you could do? Well, think for a moment. How would you rate yourself as a listener? All right, now go talk to your, your wife. How would she rate you as a listener? And, and then, if it's lower than you think, ask why. <laughs> yeah, right. Maybe, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah, unless you want to be overly discouraged. And so what, what, what just happened? We went from vague, be a good listener to, well, I want to be a good listener, so now what? What do I do? Well, go ask someone else why maybe you're not a good listener. And what would the obvious assumption be? Well, if they give you these answers, begin to think, how can I change that? Now, again, that's what I'm saying. They don't need to know every single thing of now what, but they can begin to process this. They're beginning to take steps. They can know the kinds of things they need to do. So you want to avoid just kind of generic, vague, abstract application. And sometimes that starts by looking at the text itself and saying, so are there specific things that these people were supposed to do? And if so, is there any parallel to us today? It's not always going to be there, but occasionally you'll find that in Scripture. You know, they were actually supposed to then, you know, lay aside the offering at the beginning of, of the, first, the first day of each week in order to help these believers who are in need. So a tangible way to love other believers would be to sacrificially give to provide for them when they're hurting. That's a pretty specific kind of application. Now, we can't gather up a relief fund for the famine in Antioch. It's already gone. Right? Uh, or the, the famine in, in Jerusalem, right? But there might be some kind of parallels that maybe it wouldn't be exactly that kind of a thing, but something similar, right? So we can see how it's specifically applied and then move to our day. And, and I think the more specific and detailed and extended you can be, the better it generally is. And so you, you could say, you're talking to kids, and you say, hey, you need to obey your parents. Like, that's good, that's good. Or you could say, so when your mom says, clean your room, what should you do? Clean it. Now, that's more specific. That's better than just some kind of generic obey your parents. Because you say obey your parents, everyone's going to walk out and be like, oh, no, no, no. But if you say, hey, when your mom asks you to clean your room, do it. What are the odds that's going to happen this week? Pretty high. And so now there's a very specific thing in their mind, right? We're saying that they're leaving with an image. But you know what an even more specific image would be? So you're in your room, you're playing your video game. And your mom comes in and says, your room's a mess. I thought I asked you to clean up your room. What do you do? Say, Mom, I'm in the middle of a video game. No, you don't do that. Fine, you know, turn it off, huff, grab a few things, throw it under your bed, go back to playing your video game. Is that obeying your mom? Would obeying your mom being saying, you know what? Mom, I'm sorry. I should have done that earlier when you asked me to. And so you turn off your game and you joyfully put the things where she told you to put them. Because that's what obeying your mom looks like. And so now there's a very clear image. There's a very clear picture that they have. And you might potentially lay out some specific steps. Let's say you're talking about the importance of, of serving your wife 
If you're in a men's retreat, and you're talking to the men there, and you're saying, you need to put your wife's needs before your own. And that's good. But then you might say, so, right now, I want you to write down something that you know your wife wants you to do, but you have not done it. Take out a piece of paper. Take out your phone. Write it down right now. Now, look at it. And now I want you to write down next to it when you're going to do it. Schedule it. Maybe you're, you know your, your wife has been asking you for a long time, you know what, honey? The sink in our bathroom is still leaking. I'll get to it. I'll get to it. You know, it's still leaking, honey. And so now you know my wife really wants me to do that. And I kind of want to watch Michigan football this Saturday. But I want to put my wife's needs above my own. And this is the only time I'm really going to have time to fix this faucet. And so I'm going to say this Saturday, I'm going to, to set aside time for me to go get the supplies I need and fix this faucet. And you've now given uh, uh, an extended, specific kind of picture. Now, I think sometimes we think those, we, we, we hear something like that, and we think, well, that's not going to be a good application, because what if my, this guy's wife doesn't want the leaky faucet fixed? Or, or what if this guy doesn't play video games and have his mom come in and clean his room? Now, is that going to be true? Of course that's going to be true. And you're not going to be able to give 50 different specific extended examples. But I think when you give one or two, you know what most people are able to do? They're able to connect the dots, right? They're able to say, okay, so my wife doesn't want me to fix the leaky faucet, but she's going to ask me to clean out the garage forever. Or you know what? She's kept saying, I really would love for us to go on a family picnic. And you don't have to necessarily bring all those things up, but people are already beginning to make those kinds of connections because they're beginning to see what you're talking about fleshed out in a real-life situation. And, and potentially what you might do is after you give that extended example, you might then give a couple briefer ones, like I just did. So I'm not going to flesh out the, your garage or go to, the, go to the for a picnic, but you mention those briefly. Highlight a few other kinds of examples to continue to get people thinking along that line. So that now they're getting a clear image of what God has said, uh, what, 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 what God has said might show up in their life. And so try to be specific and extended and detailed. And then have variety. And this is why you don't want to just always make the application based on your own life. Because you have a whole host of people in your church who are facing different experiences and different issues. And so think about all the different kinds of people who are there. You've got younger people. You've got middle-aged people. You've got older people. People who are single. People who are married. People who are parents. People who have no children. People who are unemployed. People who work as employees. People who actually run their own business. You have a whole bunch of different kinds of people. And then you could look at one specific kind of person and talk about a whole host of different roles that they have in their own life. So you have a a lady in your church. Maybe she's about 40 years old. And she's a wife. She's also a mother. And she's also a daughter. And perhaps she works outside the home. Or maybe she works in the home. Runs her own business. And she has neighbors. And she lives as a citizen in society. And perhaps she teaches Sunday school. Or she uh, is involved in the choir or music ministry in the church. And so if you're asking a question like, I want, we need to show mercy to others because we have been shown mercy. So what might it look like for her to show mercy to her husband? Or what might it look like for her to show mercy to her elderly father who's getting crankier and crankier in life? Or what might it look like for her to show mercy to her neighbor who's throwing parties at 10 o'clock at night? Or what might it look like for her to show mercy to the children that she's teaching in her Sunday school class? And all of these are different ways that it would show up in her life. And so you want to to hit a variety of different things. You don't want to keep hitting hitting the same uh, kinds of people week after week. Sometimes you want to give examples for young single people, and other times you want to give examples for, for married people, and sometimes you even can flesh that out, break it down more, more specifically, <clears throat> excuse me, 
Because maybe she's a mother, but she could be a single mother. Or maybe she could be a mother with a godly husband, or she might be a mother with an unbelieving husband. She might be a mother with one child, or might be a mother with six children. It might be a mother with healthy, growing children, or it might be a mother with a special needs child. Or a mother who homeschools, or maybe her kids go to a public school, or maybe they go to a private school. And maybe there's extended family around who are help, or maybe there's extended family around who are a hindrance. Or maybe there's no one around other than the church. And there's all these different things that could bear out in her life. And so these are the kinds of things you can try to think through as you're saying, so what would it look like for her to show mercy? And then you think about other potential people in your church. And if you only focus on yourself, you'll miss out on a lot of important applications. Uh, one person pointed out, often, especially when you're learning to preach, you tend to be younger. And so you don't think about the kinds of issues that you face as you get older. <coughs> Questions of when should I retire? And will we have enough money when we get there? And maybe I know I'm getting older and at some point in time, the Lord's going to call me home. And often in these passages, there's great truths that would be a comfort to people like that. There'd be a help to people as they're facing those things. But if you just think about your own life, you're going to miss all that. And so you want to force yourself to think about people in different stages of life. But another quick caution here. I do think you want to be careful about addressing a specific instance that you know of in your church, in your sermon. You know, so if I could, I know Tad, I'll pick on Tad. So let's say you're a youth pastor at a church down in southern Texas, and you know, you're dealing with, like, well, everyone knows who I'm talking about now, right? And so you don't want to give that, it's like, here's a hypothetical. It's like, well, that sounds just like what Bob's going through right now. And Bob knows, I just talked to the pastor about that last week. Like, why is he saying this? You don't want to do that. You want them to be the kinds of things your people might be facing and you don't know. I don't think you usually want to bring up, these are the kinds of things I know you're facing, unless it's not, uh, unless it's kind of public, I guess I can say. Right? So you say, hey, you know what? You know, this sister just found out this week. You know, she's diagnosed with stage four cancer. And so what does God want her to do in response to this. You know, this is what he wants to do. So let's be praying that God will help with that. I think those kinds of things are okay. But you don't want to, you don't want to use your sermon to deal with a problem in your church. Right? Uh, sixth, remember your audience. And that's because as you're thinking about these different people, you're not thinking about a generic person. You're thinking about people in your community. I was talking uh, with some folks at uh, breakfast this morning, and uh, some of the differences between settings like this around Detroit and up in you know, you know, the UP in Michigan, kind of different, different realities. And if you're reading you know, things like in the New York Times and, and those kinds of stuff, and you're like, oh, this is, this is what's happening in our culture, and then you come into the church and like, look, this is what we need to deal with, they're like, we're not dealing with any of that stuff. And so you want to remember your context. You want to remember the issues that your people are facing. You want, you want to wrestle with the kinds of situations that they might encounter. And, can I say it this way too, in your application, you don't want to be talking about the sin out there and the problems out there. You're talking about the sin in here. Les Olala, you know, longtime president of Northland, he used to say, you can't preach loud enough to preach to the people who aren't there. So don't try. Preach to the people who are there. The issues they're facing and what they need to hear from this. And then finally in this section, consider your tone. And I think that's because in different kinds of applications, you, you want to approach it in different ways. Sometimes you want to have a kind of appeal and pleading with your people. I think Paul does this, for example, in Philippians 4. Philippians 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and I long for you, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And I, I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
I said, what do you have here? I, I, I love you and I care for you. I, I, I want you to live this way. And you're pleading with your people and you're appealing to them. And other times you're going to have a, a kind of, let me come along this side and, and encourage you and perhaps even challenge you a little bit. I think that's the kind of mindset that Paul has in, with Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.6. For this reason, I remind you, feign into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I, I don't think Paul's coming to Timothy and being like, come on, Timothy, get it together. I think he's saying, I, I, God's gifted you. Use your gift. Exercise it to its fullest, Timothy. Come on. You can do it. But there's also going to be times in which you need to rebuke and command. I think this has to be Paul's mindset in 1 Corinthians 5. He's like, what are you doing? Even unbelievers don't do this. And you're arrogant about this. Purge this sin. Purge this man out from among you. And yet I think in all these kinds of situations that there needs to be a kind of gentleness. A kind of compassion and a kind of understanding that isn't coming along and saying, why don't you guys get your act together? Because I have. There's always this recognition that, you know what? We all struggle with certain things like this. I'm not coming as though I'm not one of you. But I am coming because I care for you. I am coming because I love you. I am coming with understanding. I am doing what Paul urges Timothy. I'm reproving and rebuking and exhorting, but I'm doing it with complete patience and teaching. I have this kind of love and respect and kindness for those to whom I am proclaiming God's truth. I want to finish just with some, some potential pitfalls. Some potential dangers as we seek to apply God's word. And the first, I think, is related to what I urged you to do in the beginning, to ground it in the text. You don't want to wrongfully bind people's consciences. You never want to say, God tells you to do this, if God did not tell them to do that. And and you have a, a kind of voice that can do that. When you are getting up and proclaiming God's truth, Many people, rightly or wrongly, are hearing it as saying, well, that must be what God says. And certainly you want to cultivate in them the mindset of the Bereans that are listening, but still going to Scripture to figure out if it's so. But you don't want to abuse that. You don't even come close to abusing that. You don't want anyone to think that you are telling them they have to do this unless God told them they have to do this. And so one of, I think one of the really helpful ways to avoid that is as you're giving application to recognize that often you are saying this is a way we could carry this out. This is not the way we need to carry it out. And so you're not saying if you love God and you love Jesus and you love your wife, you're going to do this. But instead you're saying, if you love God and you love Jesus and you love your wife, then this might be a way you show it. This might be a way you live it out. And there might be other ways you can do that. And so, for example, if you're saying, um, you know, something like, uh, hey, you know, if we, we need to be generous. We need to be people who are not stingy with the resources that God has given us. And so we need to have hearts that, that are willing to, to give to others. And so, you know, if you really love God, that means you're going to go down Friday night and you're going to serve in the soup kitchen. Like, well, I mean, I don't know that I can say that from the Bible. You have to do that. Might that be a way for you? Well, yeah, that might be a way for you to carry that out. But there's a whole host of other ways for you to do that. And so you don't want to make your application sound as if it is the thing that God has called you to do. That then, I think, flows as well then to the second Danger, confusing principle and application. The principle is timeless. We need to be generous with the resources God has given us. We need to love our wives and sacrificially give and put their needs before ours. The applications we give are not. They are tied to specific instances and cultures. And we have historically, in in conservative, evangelical, and fundamentalist circles, I think hurt believers 
and churches by not properly distinguishing these. And so let me just briefly kind of mention a, a few that hopefully we're now all kind of seeing how this came, came about. So like going to a movie theater. Is the Bible said you cannot go to a movie theater? I don't know that I can make that case. I think I can make a case from, from biblical teaching that most of the movies are there in the movie theater you shouldn't be going to. That a lot of them are not the kind of things that you should be putting your, your, in, in before your eyes. And, and, and really, that's the principle that I think was behind initially the idea of saying, let's not go there because we don't want to be supporting this kind of industry and those kinds of things. But what happened over time is movies just weren't in the movie theater. Where were movies? Well, they used to be in this place called Blockbuster, right? And now they're just everywhere. You can see them anywhere. And so if you say, look, if we're going to be holy, we can't go to movie theaters. Like, amen, let's go home and stream a couple. Right? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Right? Because what's happened? We've, we've, we've treated the application as if it's actually what God says, instead of saying, here's the principle. And so that might mean you need to say, I'm never going to go to a movie theater. But that also might mean you need to say, I'm going to drop my Netflix subscription. Because that's how we're talking about the situations in which we're facing. Right? Now again, I, I tried to frame it in such a way that it didn't say, you must, because I don't know that I can. But it might mean that. That might be an implication for you as you're trying to, to live this out. Or beards. I know this sounds strange looking around the room now. Right? But not too long ago, uh, in, in places like this, institutions like this, you couldn't have a beard. And, and I think there probably was some wisdom to those things because there was a time in which if you wore a beard, what were you saying? I'm countercultural. I'm sticking it to the man. I, I'm, I don't want to fit in with everyone else. I want to stand out. And is that the kind of mindset Christians should have? I don't, I don't think so. Is that what a beard means now? I don't think so. So is the principle valid? The principle is valid. But the application has changed. I think it's similar to, to pants on women. That the principle behind it was what? There should be a, a distinguishing between how men and women dress. That men are to dress in ways that demonstrate their manhood and, and that are culturally appropriate. And women are to dress in ways that demonstrate their femininity and are culturally appropriate. And, and at the time, it was very culturally inappropriate for women to wear pants. It was a sign of rebellion. It was a sign to push back against culture. But I don't think it's the case now. And if we said, look, God said women can never wear pants. You're like, I don't think men wear pants in the Bible, right? That seems really strange. Like, why would we, why would we frame it that way? And what we're doing, well, we're confusing the principle with the application. And so we want to make sure we're distinguishing those things. We want to say, look, this is what God says. And in light of that, in light of what this means in our culture, and a lot of what this looks like in our culture, I really think that Christians should not be engaged in this kind of a thing. But we're, we're, we're showing how we got there. We're not just railing on the application. We're pointing to the principle and trying to tie it there. Another potential danger, and this I think especially can be tied uh, to, to trying to be specific in your application. That sometimes you can only focus on, on small or simple things. And by trying to be specific, you can, you can treat an issue as if it's, it's just like this simple thing. So, hey, you know, you got a rough marriage. And you know what will change, what will transform your marriage? If you start dating your wife. And, and you can almost give the inspection, you know, once a week, you're going to date with your wife, no marriage problems again. Is that going to work? It's not going to work. Because there's more involved. Could that be a good thing? Yeah, that could be a good thing. You know, what? you know what could be helpful for you? If you started dating your wife, you might find that would be a really helpful thing in your marriage. But it's not as though, and that's all you got to worry about. Three simple steps to a happy life, right? That, that's often how these specific kinds of... And you, you don't want to treat it that way. You don't want to oversimplify it. And you also don't want to trivialize it. You don't want to look at a passage where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you got to take up your cross and, and, and follow me. And so that means Sunday afternoon, you may want to watch some Lions football, but you should really come back to church. Like, I, it probably means more than that, right? 
I mean, uh, this is probably a little bit bigger than something like that. Don't, don't treat something that's much more significant and much more grand than, than the kind of things that you might talk about. But the flip side of that is you don't want to act as though God just cares about those big grand things, but doesn't care about those smaller things. Because yes, God does want you to, to give up your life for him. But he also does care about what you said to your daughter this morning. And he does also care about what you think about your boss. And so you, you, you want to help people to understand he cares about these small things. And so you're not ignoring them. But you're also not trying to, to take the, the real significant large things and, and probably trivialize it isn't so much as you're, you're, all, you're trying to make them easier than really what God's asking you to do. And so you want to try to reflect the, the greatness of, of the application in line with what Scripture has to say. And then just a final warning. Uh, I have moralizing there. I don't, I don't know if that's the best term for it. But, but largely what I'm saying is this. You don't want in your application to give the impression that says, hey, you know, do a little better. You know, every, every, every passage you come to is just kind of, well, you know what, why don't you kind of turn your life around? Why don't you reform it a little bit? Because in Scripture, when we're called to act, it's always in response to what God has done and is doing in us. And so in your application, you, you, you never want to neglect that reality. You always want to emphasize, it's not just, hey, starting a little better. It's look at what God has done. Look at who he is. Look at what he's doing. Look at what he's offered to you. And so in light of that, you should and you can begin to live this way. By God's grace, you can grow in this. By God's grace, you can stop thinking this way. By God's grace, you can overcome these kinds of things. And so it's not just a, hey, it's self-help. It's a recognition by God's Spirit in His power. Let's begin to live out what He has said in His Word.